Welcome to Swift Unwrapped, a podcast about the Swift programming language and other projects at Swift.org. I'm Jesse Squires. And I'm JP Simard. And before we get started, we have a sponsor today. It is Instabug, which is the simplest yet most comprehensive bug reporting and in-app feedback SDK. If you have problems receiving inaccurate feedback, or if you have an inconsistent beta testing process, or if you're wasting a lot of time debugging instead of developing, then Instabug might be the right solution for you. It provides in-app feedback so your users and beta testers can now submit a thorough feedback from your app just by shaking the phone, and they will be able to take a screenshot, draw, annotate, and highlight any sensitive data. So again, Instabug provides bug reporting, crash reporting, and device details, network logs, steps to reproduce, and a view hierarchy inspection are sent with every report, and it's just one line of code to integrate their SDK. So you can find sign-up details and everything else you need by going to instabug.com swift. Thanks to Instabug for sponsoring. And before we dive into a super deep topic and start uh, a flame war here between Jesse and I, we wanted to cover just a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, we took a few weeks break this summer uh, for no particular reason other than uh, we came up on you know the the next episode that we needed to record, and Jesse and I were busy and we were traveling, and we just said, you know, let's just take a little break, uh, reset. Let's not you know, impose this, uh, insanity on ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's been a lot to, uh, bring an episode every single week. So it was nice to have that time off. Yeah. And, uh, in the meantime, you know, there's plenty that's been happening in the Swift world. And, uh, so we're excited to get back into it. Uh, but moving forward, we'll probably be aiming for more of a monthly schedule for the shows. Yeah, that's right. We may diverge from that occasionally for special reasons or, if there's uh, something important coming up, but uh, yeah, going forward will be a monthly podcast about the Swift programming language and other projects at Swift.org. Yeah, it's a little funny because uh, like the Swift Weekly uh, blog, for example, yeah. has the cadence in the name. <laughs> and so yeah. it's kind of like locking in uh, a specific schedule even though at this point they're more or less bi-weekly posts, right? Right. right. Uh, so it's a good thing we didn't call this podcast Swift Weekly or Swift every seven days, exactly. Yeah. All right, so today we are going to discuss uh, Jordan Rose's post on the Swift forums um, about the plan for module stability in Swift. Yeah, it is, it is a plan. I don't know that this is necessarily... Um, like fully approved by the Swift core team, for example. I don't really see any kind of canonical statements like that, but you can be sure that Jordan didn't come up with this in isolation in a vacuum, right? And that this is some concepts that have evolved over time from discussions with the Swift core team. And a lot of this seems to echo some of the previous conversations we've had, like, for example, with Ted on the show. Uh, but you know, this isn't set in stone is all I'm saying. This is simply a plan. 
Right. And the the feedback on the post so far seems pretty positive and supportive. So it's probably gives us a pretty good idea of where this is going. Yeah. And I think we can take some time in this show to actually talk about some of the uh, more controversial aspects because there there have been uh, some concerns raised in the discussions in this post. And I think it's worth exploring those. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I guess the, the first thing to kind of clarify here is like module stability versus ABI stability. Yeah. What does it mean? Yeah. So ABI stability uh, means that an executable compiled against Swift 5 will work with the Swift 6 libraries and that an executable compiled against Swift 6, for example, will work with the Swift 5 libraries. Module stability is related but slightly different, and it really deals with the interface to uh, these libraries. And what the goal is in general is that the interface for a library should be forward compatible with future versions of the compiler, Uh, which if you think about that, that's actually kind of a daunting task. feels like to be forward compatible. Yeah, and and that's the whole point of what, what's discussed as stability and resiliency. Yeah. Or rather non-resiliency. Um, and we can ex- extend on that later. But one way that I've been thinking about it is that ABI stability is most on its own is mostly useful for Swift the language and Swift the standard library, but as library authors, as module authors that aren't shipping uh, your modules or frameworks with the OS that Swift generally runs on, ABI stability alone isn't enough for you to, say, distribute binary versions of your frameworks to consumers. Uh, If you do that, and folks have done that in the past, there are just a number of pitfalls Mm -hmm. where, well, so far there's been kind of a first line of defense when you try to import uh, a binary that was compiled with a different version of Swift, which is really just an upfront check that says, well, this was compiled with a different version of Swift. But that's more or less artificial, right? Because if you removed this explicit check, you would just get a number of uh, undefined issues, right? depending on what was different between those versions of Swift. Mm -hmm. And what ABI stability provides is the foundation for... Uh, different versions of uh, the language to talk to each other, whereas what module stability defines is more a way for, like you said, libraries that I compile today with Swift 5 that you, using this library a year from now with Swift 6, can still keep linking against that same version of the binary. So if I release it today... Without recompiling. Without without recompiling my library. So if I, com- if I release this today, I don't have to cut binary releases every time there's a minor patch release, minor or patch release or major release of Swift yeah. moving forward. Uh, I can more or less be home free and you can keep using that indefinitely until uh, the Swift team defines that this stability period is over. Yeah. Right. Uh, what I found was super interesting was um, some of the pros or advantages that Jordan outlines um, for how module stability is useful. One is, and what I found was interesting is that the most obvious and high touch one that we just mentioned 
the ability to distribute binary frameworks isn't really mentioned here. Yeah. It it can be derived from the points that are shown, but you know, usually when you make a pitch, you know, you you try and go for, you know, what does this mean for me and and uh how does this benefit me? And I found it interesting that it wasn't explicitly mentioned. Yeah, it, I mean, that seems like the thing that a lot of people are wanting, but not really sure why they want that. Like same with ABI stability. A lot of people seem kind of upset that it's been delayed so much, but in reality, like most app developers are not affected by it. Well, most app developers will be affected by module stability indirectly because it enables uh, the distribution of binary frameworks in a much safer way. Sure, sure. So this is very high impact. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I'm definitely with you when you say that, you know, folks have not really understood what ABI stability means or have either wanted it with without necessarily knowing why, like knowing the end results, or said that it wasn't important, conversely, uh, without understanding what it enabled. Sure. Right? But specifically for module stability, it's going to be very high impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it depends on if you're wanting to distribute binary frameworks, which I just don't really have a good intuition for like how many organizations are doing that well what's a common complaint about swift over the last four years the time it takes to compile oh well sure right right and yeah, yeah. so if if you're wondering you know what kind of tangible improvement distributing binary frameworks gives reducing the end application compilation time is a big part of that sure sure not only that, but uh, even just locally on your machine, say you compile your app using Swift 5, yeah. and then you want to test out a new, and this is actually the first point that Jordan mentions, you can test a new compiler without rebuilding all of an app's dependencies. Right. Uh, so that's definitely a big win. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second point is it can overlap with work to make the debugger work across Swift versions. It's just more about the stability part rather than the uh, how safe it is to distribute binary frameworks. Right, right. Uh, yeah, he also points out that it could help reduce incremental build time by better tracking uh, cross-target dependencies. I thought about that point for a little while. Do you, what's your understanding of what that means or of why that is? Yeah, not totally sure actually how that plays in here. So I'll preface this by saying I'm also not completely sure, but I suspect that it's it has something to do with um, uh, the contents of what will be included in this new Swift interface file that's being proposed, which is as opposed to what was previously in the Swift module, and we'll explain kind of the difference between those in a minute, there was... Uh, description of the entire API surface area of the module, mm-hmm. including private, file private, and internal members. Right. Uh, whereas in the new Swift interface, it'll only be the public API and um, the inlinable function bodies that uh, uh, that consumers can pull in. By constraining uh, what API is included in this interface to only the public one, it can be simpler to track what is being used from other modules. 
Right. Yeah. That's what I suspect. Mm-hmm. The reason why I'm not sure, well, there's several, but it is possible today to know, or, or maybe it's not really, because there, there, there is a way where uh, the Swift compiler can detect from that full interface that's defined in the Swift module, which one of those have public access control levels. Right. And it might just be, this might just be a, a convenience thing where it'll be simpler to track cross-target dependencies. Mm-hmm. Or I might be missing the boat entirely as to why this is enabled by this suggestion. Yeah. Because really, even in the current state, anything less than public should just be ignored for like these purposes, right? I mean, you don't, if it's less than public, then across, like, and you're talking about cross target boundaries, then none of the less than public access modifiers should even really be considered, right? Or come into play when doing this. Well, I think they're, um, explicitly filtered out by the front end Mm -hmm. so there's still all so the entire surface area of the api is included in the swift module Mm -hmm. and at render time you know when you print the generated interface um like you can do an xcode right if you yeah uh control command click a member into a module that you don't have the source to Mm -hmm. you'll see the pretty printed uh, Swift module interface. And I think the non-public members are just filtered out. That's true. Yeah. So they're still in there. So when you build tooling, for example, to better track cross-target dependencies, you you need to do this filtering. Gotcha. Um, So it might just become easier and more convenient uh, to do this if only the public API is included in the Swift interface. Mm -hmm. So if anyone's listening to the show and you have more insight into why this would be the case, uh, definitely do chime in. Yeah, cool. So the uh, proposed solution here, do you want to go over that? Yeah, sure. The proposed solution would be, um, well, first it's probably good to give a little bit of context as to how other languages do this and maybe how Swift 4 does this today. So yeah. the interface um, for C-based languages like C and Objective-C and C++ is defined in separate interface files, right? You have your .h files or .hpp files um, for your interfaces, and then you flesh out those interfaces in your implementation files, your .c, .m, .mm, .cpp. Mm-hmm. Um, for Swift, obviously, you combine those into a single file, uh, right? Your .swift file for, for the source. However, there is no explicit user-entered interface, right? It's derived from the source files. So there's no equivalent to the H file for Swift right. that users manually create. But uh, it's still useful for the compiler tool chain and really any tooling that works with the language to know what the exposed interface to something is. Mm-hmm. And so when you compile a framework, say you've worked with exter- external pre-compiled frameworks before in your apps, mm-hmm. when you control command click into that token that's defined from a closed source framework, you'll see the generated module interface. Right. And this is pretty printed at runtime from a binary source that's called the the .swift module file. Mm -hmm. And one of those exists 
today per OS and architecture pair. So say you have a fat framework, you know, with multiple target OSs and architectures, you'll have one of those .swift module files for each architecture that you've combined into this framework. Right. And the proposed solution to, to move forward from there. So one of the constraints with that is that that Swift module file isn't stable. The format hasn't stabilized and isn't stable for future Swift versions. It's, it's not built in a way that you can guarantee that it won't break as the language evolves. Right. Which, mean, to clarify, just means it's potentially changing every Swift version, the format of that file. and Yeah. Which means that this falls apart uh, for one of the goals of module stability, which is compile a module with Swift 5 and link against it with Swift 6. Exactly. And with Swift 4, there, there was a similar approach taken for source stability, where the compiler had a special uh, Swift 3 mode. Yep. The Swift 4 compiler had a special th Swift 3 mode that would parse and special case uh, backwards compatible Swift 3 implementations. Mm -hmm. And the goal for module stability is to generalize that so that you know we don't need a Swift 3 mode and Swift 4 and Swift 4.1 and Swift 4.2 mode for all future Swift compiler versions, but rather to define kind of a, a stable point in the language. And so the, the proposal, uh, this is a long-winded explanation, but the proposal is to pretty print the type-checked uh, abstract syntax tree to a textual form, very similar to what the module interface looks like today when you generate it in Xcode, into a text file. Yeah, uh, this new .swift interface file. Correct. And this would uh, leverage the fact that Swift is aiming for very strong source compatibility and source stability uh, starting with Swift 5 and onwards, well, really, it started with Swift 4, to ben benefit from that fact that the Swift source is already stable, needs to be stable for many business reasons, right? Mm -hmm. And so rather than come up with a stable binary format on top of that, they're leveraging the fact that the Swift source syntax mm -hmm. should be stable with Swift 5. Right. That is, I think, the the gist of it. Yeah. Which I guess is similar to the way that C accomplishes module stability, which is via source stability. Correct. Because of the the usage of manually written header files. Exactly. The yeah. difference being that these will be automatically generated by the compiler for right. Swift and not manually created for C languages, which is error prone, obviously, and time consuming. You mean you don't want header files in Swift? Well, we're getting them. I just don't have to write them. Yeah, exactly. Um, some interesting uh, differences as well between C languages and uh, this new Swift interface is, um, well, for one, there'll be there'll be platform and deployment target uh, dependent. They won't be platform and deployment target generic. Right. So what I mean by that is for C languages, whenever you recompile anything that links against this C library, you basically compile the .h files if it was your own source, mm -hmm. right? Including whatever uh, preprocessor macros or uh, target-specific uh, things that need to happen, which is why it's, it's basically just source that lives in this .h file. Yeah. However, uh, 
with this new proposed approach, it'll be whatever was used to compile that framework in the first place will be baked into that interface. So say you're building a cross-platform Swift module. You build it once for macOS, once for iOS, uh, once for watchOS, once for tvOS, and then you combine all of those architecture slices into one binary. You'll have four or more uh, different Swift interface files. Right. And if ever there are differences in what's compiled per platform or architecture, those will be baked in in a way that you can't bypass or change after this is compiled. Yeah, and that'll also include the Swift version in which that you're compiling with as well, right? Does that not matter at this point? Doesn't matter as far as this is concerned, I think. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it necessarily matters. It The Swift version might be included in there, mm-hmm. but it's not necessary for any of this. If anything, it could be necessary to do things like uh, availability checks. And then we talk more about um, uh, module resilience than module stability, like the ability to continue uh, extending a module over time rather than reusing an already compiled snapshot of that module backwards and forwards in time across different Swift versions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, one interesting uh, distinction here as well is um, for inlineable function bodies. So this is code that is marked as inlineable, uh, which isn't currently publicly available to uh, consume, to Swift programs outside the Swift standard library, as far as I know. Right. I thought no i think you can it just has like the underscore prefix and it's like oh you shouldn't right use this that's technical. what i mean yeah and i i feel like this was maybe coming with swift 4.2 if not like definitely with swift 5 allowing clients to do this i think so did they not settle on the attribute usable from inline or something like that there was something like that uh, i can't recall yeah, that's what it is. So SC193 is actually already implemented for Swift 4.2. Gotcha. Okay. And um, it provides a an at usable from inline attribute that marks internal declarations as being part of the public interface of a module. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, but you can also annotate public members as inlineable, right? Yes. Okay. And even given all of that, these are still only hints to the compiler. It doesn't act- mean that these things will for sure be in line. Uh, correct. Yeah, I think they're... So the description here in SE193 says that uh, these attributes make those declarations available to the optimizer when referenced from other modules. Not necessarily that uh, that it is guaranteed to be in line. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, anyway, so uh, I don't know if it'd be worthwhile to talk about, you know, the pros and cons of this being a textual format over a binary format. We touched on it briefly. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure I'd have enough knowledge to really debate the merits of either approach. Although it seems like for like at least the reasons listed here, it seems like the textual representation has a few benefits uh, to leverage like some of the existing uh, architecture in the compiler. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think one of the points listed here as to some of the benefits is um, say that this was a binary format that was 
representing the serialized form of the Swift intermediate language, SIL, then they would also need to define SIL stability. Right. Which has not been done, right? This intermediate format. Mm -hmm. And presumably would be a lot of work that would potentially only really be useful here. Maybe it'd be useful for cross-switch version tooling too, like LLDB. Mm -hmm. But I think if they can uh, really double down on source stability, and this gives them extra reason to, then that benefits everyone, including folks who just care about source stability. Right. Uh, it also means that if there's uh, anything that's not source stable, the uh, there's much higher uh, reason or motivation to fix it because it, it'll break things across the stack. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, another benefit, obviously, of storing the Swift interface in a textual form is debuggability. And even uh, if you want to inspect the public interface of a framework uh, as a consumer, then you can just go in and open the plain text file and see what the uh, what the interface is, right? So it doesn't require the use of Xcode or the Swift compiler in order to extract a, print a pretty printed version of the interface. Yeah, you can do it when browsing the asset on your favorite FTP site. Yeah, so the uh, format will be. Not necessarily human readable. No, it Some, definitely will be. Somewhat, yeah. But it'll, it'll be like mangled names and such. No. 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 Um, but it will have uh, explicit type information. Or, sorry, no, it won't. This was one of the explorations that they did. Let me see if I can find it in here. I'm still not exactly finding it, but there was a discussion about whether or not this uh, textual interface should include explicit type information. Um, and like resolving type aliases and stuff. And the conclusion was that uh, this might actually complicate things and, and cause source incompatible changes over time. Hmm. So say a type alias internally points to something for Swift 5 and internally points to some other thing for Swift 6, but they share the common interface. Yeah. Resolving those those aliases would be a bad idea. Right. And the description, this is, you know, second sentence of the proposed solution. The solution is going to be printing a type-checked AST to a textual form. So I guess it doesn't say pretty printing, but mm -hmm. uh, I suspect that it will be very similar to what the generated interface looks like today. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, it's possible it won't be, I suppose, that it could be, you know, space compressed, for example. Sure. But I don't think that would really be worthwhile, especially because this is only used. I wonder if, yeah, this should only be used at compile time. It shouldn't actually be included in the final binary or the final bundle. Mm -hmm. um, so there's no reason to really optimize that much for size because you shouldn't be deploying these. Right. Makes sense. Um, yeah. What's going to be interesting is that, you know, currently the uh, the generated interface that you can explore in Xcode effectively looks like protocol declarations, right? Where yeah. they're function declarations without any bodies. Right. And I'm curious if, so this should be similar other than for inlineable code, which will have bodies. Yep. And so this isn't quite, you know, the, the same Swift syntax that would be valid if you're writing uh, Swift source yourself. Sure. And so I'm curious to see if this uh, divergence 
very slight but still there divergence in valid syntax might mean that there are multiple Swift syntax uh, modes to keep stable. Yeah. And that should be stable. You know, one should be almost a straight subset of the other right. because the because the Swift interface can have just the interface or some actual source for inlineable code, whereas actual source needs to be 100% actual source. Yeah, exactly. Presumably, this will be a compiler front-end flag similar to kind of how parsing playgrounds work. Sure. But still, this is a variation of... This, this just means there's more than one Swift source to keep stable. It's basically two. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't seem like that much of a divergence, though. I mean, it's it's small, but um, yeah, I just, there is a difference. Yeah, totally. And I wonder if there'd be any benefit to aligning those and saying, I don't know, like you wouldn't want to have uh, uh, an empty function body mm -hmm. uh, in your Swift interface, and then the compiler just kind of replaces that um, just for the sake of it being valid Swift source syntax. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, so would you want to go the other way around and actually enable bodiless function declarations in actual Swift source? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's one of the uh, the potential risks with this approach that wasn't really outlined is this is a variant of Swift source syntax. Yeah. I think the, the last interesting point here uh, are transitive dependencies. Uh, so he calls out the case where if you have ABC kit that depends on a binary framework XYZ kit um, and XYZ changes, then ABC will need to be recompiled as well. So like detecting those transitive dependencies is going to be something to resolve as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is specifically more about the library evolution, library resilience. Right. So it's not so much the case of I ship you a framework today and you can keep using it until 2020. It's more about I keep working on this framework and keep sending you new versions. This seems like like a compiler optimization, really, more than anything. Actually, it's not because it it means that uh, it means that if you swap out one of the libraries after it's been compiled. Yeah. Then you'll need to recompile the whole thing. Whereas for direct dependencies, you wouldn't have that issue. Yes. Right. This this get actually gets us into also um, you know once we have the ability to evolve stable libraries, right? Mm -hmm. Resilience, library evolution, that uh, we'd likely need some more robust tooling around. Uh, diffing two versions of the library to ensure that it was evolved in a safe way. Mm -hmm. And really, that's we've never really needed something along those lines so far. So this is actually something that one could build uh, in the community using tools like SourceKit, mm -hmm. where you could compile or compare the public interface between two versions of a framework or Swift source. Yeah, yeah. Kind of run the tool with one git revision checked out, output that to kind of a file that describes everything in the public interface. Maybe it's something like this Swift interface file. Maybe it's as simple as that is really a tool that compares two Swift interface files and uh, confirms 
or describes the kinds of changes that were made if it, if it was done in a in a resilient way or if it was done in um you know a a major uh semver breaking way right yeah actually someone called that out in the comments on this post um being able to to utilize this interface file to automatically version libraries according to Simver. Right. Which would be awesome because then you could, you have your library and you're about to release a new version. Let's say you're on like 3.0 and you'd have some tool that you just run that tells you what your next version number should be. Yeah. And you actually have tools like that that exist today. Okay. I think uh, the GitHub repo is uh, material motion with a hyphen, material hyphen motion slash API diff. And it's from um, Jeff uh, Verkoyan, who works at Google, presumably on material. And it's a tool that you can run for different versions, different Git refs, effectively, of your project. And it supports Objective-C, Swift, and Android even. And then you can, uh, it'll tell you exactly what in the public interface has changed. Uh, it doesn't quite automatically derive semantic version numbers. Okay. Actually, yeah, it doesn't quite do that. Um, but it at least gives you a semantic diff of the things that should be involved in making that decision. Sure. But that's actually the hard part. It should be pretty easy to go from that to given an initial version uh What's the minimum new version? Yeah. Yeah, that'd be a cool thing to see. Okay, I think that's all we have for today. Thanks again to Instabug for sponsoring. You can check them out at instabug.com slash Swift. You can find the show on Twitter at Swift underscore Unwrapped. You can find me at Jesse underscore Squires. You can find me at SimJP on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.